0: Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. Can you believe this? Half of all of our dogs are overweight or obese. 60% of cats, the same. Dr. Jason Gagne, veterinary nutritionist with Purina, will be here to talk about that. And also, we'll talk about the disparity, and it's growing. The number of pets... It's never, we've never had so many pets. And the number of veterinarians, that continues to decline. So what are some solutions when it comes to this problem? Dr. Jeff Bloomberg, founder of Veterinary Diagnostic Center. That is a long word, long several words there. Uh, Dr. Bloomberg, what what is the Veterinary Diagnostic Center that's coming to Chicago?
1: Steve, thanks for having me on. So, Veterinary Diagnostic Centers, our tagline is simply redefining the veterinary ultrasound experience. Uh, As a veterinarian practicing in the Chicago area for 20-plus years, along with my wife, who also has 20 years experience, Dr. Katie Bloomberg, uh, we've realized that there is a real shortfall of service providers um, for many different types of services uh, within veterinary care right now. Um, And we decide to tackle the lack of availability for ultrasounds. So we have set up a brick-and-mortar location for um, our fellow referring veterinarians, just general practice veterinarians, uh, who recommend an ultrasound for their patients to come to us and and have the ultrasound done in a a very quiet, uh, fear-free setting. Um, We're going to be taking patients starting in in mid-March, and we will be located at 3114 West Irving Park Road in Chicago.
0: All right. Now, when you told me about this, we were we happened to be at a social event, and you told me, and I said, I think I said, hooray, because I know and understand the need for it. So right now, you try to make an appointment for routine care or something maybe going on with your pet, with your veterinarian, and by the way, this is going on all over the country, friends. It's not only Chicago. It takes a long time, often, to get that appointment, and now you're told... The veterinarian suspects something. And you are already at the edge of your seat, if you will, and and really want to know the answer to, because veterinarians cannot, nor can human physicians, see through either pets or people. So you need the ultrasound to get the answer for sure. But now there's a wait that's even longer for that ultrasound because of the way things are now. So I want to back it up a step And talk about the way things are and why things are the way things are now, which in short has to do with fewer veterinarians in the profession, more clients than ever before, as there are a record number of pet parents. It was going up anyway. But during the pandemic, it really shot up fast and now continues to go up, not as fast, but continues to go up. That's the essence of it. But it's a bit more complicated than that because you need people to run all this equipment and who are qualified to do so. Am I correct?
1: That's exactly right, Steve. Unlike um, radiographs, you know, x-rays, ultrasounds are a much steeper learning curve for um, for the users to, to just even find the organs and then a whole other level of, of training to actually recognize normal versus abnormal. So there are very few general practice veterinarians who feel comfortable doing a full diagnostic ultrasound on their pets. So typically, um, when we do need an ultrasound in our profession, there's, there's two other, other models. One, you, you get sent to the specialty hospital where there's a radiologist or internal medicine specialist or a cardiologist that you would go to. Um, but as you had said, the problem is that there really are too few service providers to fulfill the demand, um, and COVID really accelerated that. There's a lot of veterinarians who retired a little bit earlier than they were expecting to because of COVID. And then there was a boom of, of people working out of the home and said, hey, this is a great time for me to get a puppy because I'm, I'm working out of the house now. Right. So those two um, factors really created a, a backlog of cases of, of every type in, in veterinary medicine. And so with ultrasounds, again, the, the, the backup to the specialty hospitals became weeks to months, depending on uh, what service exactly you, you needed. And the other model that uh, we've been using in our profession is actually mobile sonographers, uh, ultrasound technicians, that will come to a general practice and, and actually uh, do the ultrasounds there. But unfortunately, um, they're not fulfilling the need either. So we felt that there was a, a really a space here to, to figure out a new way to deliver this service. Um, and, and uh, Steve, one of the, the great things that we're really proud of here is that, you know, with the lack of veterinarians, this model actually does not need a veterinarian on site all the time because we are not diagnosing, we are not prognosing, we are not treating. All we're really doing is data collection and then sending the data that we are collecting for the ultrasound to a uh, to a remote specialist who will read it out and send the report back to the veterinarian who who originally ordered the test. And so using um, certified veterinary technicians and ultrasound technicians to the highest level of their abilities and credentials, uh, they are able to step in and fill this need without uh, needing a veterinarian standing right there by their side. And and so it's really going to help relieve a lot of this backlog that we're seeing.
0: Yes, in one slice of the pie, if you will, in one area Absolutely yes to that explanation, Mark. Beside, things are supply and demand, and if things are really hard to get, things get more expensive, no matter what that thing happens to be. I don't know much about the economy or economics, but I think I'm right about that. So the result of this could bring down, in Chicago anyway, the cost of ultrasounds at least a little bit, in theory, am I right?
1: Absolutely. We're we're trying to put this at a a price point here where it's affordable for people. Um, And that's, you know, one of the great things that we're going to be able to do is not just do a, a, a cardiac ultrasound, but our service is going to allow us to do a full remote cardiology consultation. So the cardiologist who's reading out the ultrasound won't just say, your pet is in stage B2 mitral valve degeneration or, you know, something fancy like that, they will actually also then uh, give to your um, primary care veterinarian recommendations for medications, for follow-up, further diagnostics. It's really going to be like having a, a remote uh, cardiology visit uh, really at, at at a lower cost than you would have going in and actually being um, with a veterinarian on site, with a cardiologist on site. And, and as a veterinarian, I will tell you, uh, firsthand, that there's nothing better than being in a room with the cardiologist, right? That's the gold standard. But the reality is, if it's a five, six-month wait, and that's really what we're hearing to get in with a cardiologist, yes. these pets cannot wait. They, they will go into heart failure. There will be problems. So we want to really be um, as close to that gold standard as possible, yet alleviate that, that delay in, in getting the pets the care that they need.
0: Now, uh, if I wanted to, if I'm concerned about my pet, and I think, okay, my pet may have, say, heart disease, and I need an ultrasound, I'm presuming I have to go to my veterinarian to get the appointment with you through the veterinarian that I can't do that on my own and well, literally coming off the street.
1: That is exactly right, and thank you for bringing that up. So this is a referral model, and we need to do that legally because um, we need the doctor that has knowledge of that patient recommending this test. We cannot just run these tests without there being a valid doctor-patient relationship for these pets. So, yes, we would need approval from... You can contact us and say, hey, I want to get this done, but we will contact your veterinarian and and get their blessing uh, to do it.
0: So, one way or another, the appointment has to be made through a veterinarian. The appointment to go where? Tell us when when you're opening, what it's called, and what the address is. And if there's a website, give us that too.
1: Okay. So this is a Veterinary Diagnostic Centers, and we expect to be taking patients mid-March. March 13th is our target date. Uh, we'll see if we get all the, uh, the, the Chicago business approvals uh, all, all done before that. But March 13th is our target date, and our location is at 3114 West Irving Park Road in Chicago. Our website's very simple. Um, it's going live on Valentine's Day, uh, February 14th. It will be up and, and available to view. And that website is www.vdc.vet, V-E-T, so Veterinary Diagnostic Center, vdc.vet.
0: Perfect. Dr. Jeff Bloomberg, thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me on, Steve. So the veterinary profession is moving in a different direction now in some ways, utilizing telehealth or telemedicine, as it's sometimes called, virtual medicine. Uh, human medicine has been doing this, even pre-pandemic. Once the pandemic hit, wow, we saw this all the time on the human side. Veterinary medicine seems to have more constraints, to some extent for good reason, I think. Let's talk about it with Dr. Brian Hurley, National Medical Director, Amer- Amerivet Veterinary Partners. Uh, Dr. Hurley, well, what do you think? I mean, There's no question that surveys demonstrate that Many pet owners, most pet owners, first of all, are millennials or Generation Z. And those pet owners actually prefer this type of communication in the first place.
1: No, absolutely. We're seeing a trend as technology gets better uh, in veterinary medicine and other industries that that we can utilize these new technologies to kind of help with the demand uh, in our veterinary hospitals for pets to be seen when a lot of our practices are kind of being forced to uh, delay or refer to other practices just because they don't have the appointment space to accommodate the number of patients that need to be seen on a daily basis.
0: So in veterinary medicine, there's something referred to as VCPR, veterinary client patient relationship. And without that relationship, that that relationship that exists, you are a client, then telehealth isn't supposed to happen. But the reality is there are many companies out there doing it with veterinary professionals, appropriate people, on the other end answering the questions, whether they be veterinary nurses and technicians or veterinarians. They're doing this right now, and you're in another part of the country. So it may not be legal, but you know what can you do it's happening and the argument has been that well our dogs and cats can't tell us what they're feeling understood but on the other hand pediatricians do this and little kids little 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 kids babies cannot really tell us any more than a dog or cat how how they're feeling yet on the human side with constraints yes but it does exist on the veterinary side Not so much. Can you talk about that? Well, I I think
1: the constraints that we're seeing on the veterinary side really involve the ability to diagnose and prescribe. So that's where that valid client-patient relationship comes in, because we have to have physically seen that patient in person to be able to diagnose and prescribe. So when you're dealing with a a telehealth platform, typically what is occurring is more of a triage type component. If it's an ill patient trying to help the pet parent determine whether it's something that needs to go to an ER immediately, like now, get there tonight, versus is it something that can wait until the next day? so they can call their primary veterinarian for that appointment? Um, Or, you know, is it something that can wait a couple of days and try to help the pet parent know when it is to go into the practice? That is the acceptable telehealth medicine as far as I'm aware, because I had also done this with um, a telehealth company where, I took calls around the country, and really the most important thing that I found for the client was peace of mind, knowing mm-hmm. it was either okay to wait overnight, wait a day, or be told, hey, this needs to be seen tonight. And that peace of mind for them is what repeatedly got, you know, told to me is, thank you so much for taking the time to help me feel better about my decisions."
0: Understood. But I also have been on those calls myself where I've witnessed, you know, they can't call it that they're diagnosing, but let's face it, they kind of are. And right, wrong, or otherwise, in the process of doing so, you know, this client's calling you because they can't get in to see their primary veterinarian in most cases. So in, in doing so, they're helping... Of assuming the information's appropriate. They're helping the pet, most importantly. They're helping the pet parent feel, yes, peace of mind. They may also be saving money for everybody. Uh, and and how can that not be a good thing as long as the person, the veterinarian, and one would assume the veterinarian is being responsible, or the veterinary technician or nurse. And there are many examples of things that can be done, I would argue, virtually, even without that client-patient relationship
1: I would agree that there are instances where telehealth can be utilized to get a good idea of what's happening with that pet to be able to help direct them in a way that is safe for their 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 pet dog or cat or you know, exotic, and then ultimately get to the veterinarian. Being a veterinarian, I still, unfortunately, I, as good as our pet parents are at realizing there's an issue with their pet, we're relying solely on what they're telling us, and sometimes what they're telling us and what we end up seeing when we physically get our hands on that patient can be sometimes totally two different things that could be devastating if we just went off what's being verbalized to us by the pet parent. And I don't know, you know, unfortunately, not being a human physician and being familiar with the, you know, the pediatric side of medicine, I don't know how that functions on that side, but that would be my concern as a veterinarian is sometimes what you think you're seeing isn't necessarily what's happening within that pet. And without getting our hands on them, you know, I'd be fearful of potentially making a wrong call.
0: And I absolutely understand and agree with everything you just said. On the other hand, we can see stuff. So you can see Mm -hmm. that the abrasion that the pet received and running around the dog received running around the dog park, you can see, you can see it. So is this something as a veterinarian you say, okay, this is what I suggest you do, purchase some of this product and give it three days. If it doesn't get any better, then contact us back or contact your veterinarian, as opposed to, this is more serious than it looks. But you can actually see that, and with your expertise, you can offer advice. And I think what what we're doing here is the right thing. We're having a discussion, which is good for the profession and, most of all, good for pet parents. And this discussion is not going to end here on this radio show. It will continue Dr. Brian Hurley, thank you so much for talking about this. The World Small Animal Veterinary Association has called it a crisis. I've never, I mean, I've been doing this for a couple of decades plus at this point. I've never heard that term from the World Small Animal Veterinary Association. So what are they so concerned about? Well, it has to do with dogs, dogs that have a certain look about them the so-called brachiocephalic dogs, the dogs that look like they just walked into a wall. We're talking about bulldogs and French bulldogs and pugs and the problems that they have as a result of their structure. They have limited airwaves. And it's not cute when that pug snores at night. It might be cute to you, but that dog is actually having trouble breathing and has trouble, well, regarding lifestyle even. And we now know those dogs... Not only those breeds I mentioned, but others actually have limited lifespans as a result. We'll talk about all of that next week. Dr. Jason Gagne is the Director of Veterinary Technical Communications at Purina. He's a veterinary nutritionist. And I will tell you, Dr. Gagne, what we want to talk about is a big problem. And I mean big quite literally. I think the statistics are, at this moment, although new data as we speak is being gathered... It's about sixty percent of indoor cats are overweight and or obese, and about half of all dogs. That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it, it, it absolutely is, Steve. And by the way, thank you for the invite here, and it's a pleasure speaking with you today. So, it absolutely is. Those numbers are correct in uh, as the source being the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention. Uh, And as you mentioned, new data is being gathered. Looking forward to that. Uh, However, we don't predict those numbers to go down at all. So there are a variety of reasons out there, whether they be the pet reasons or owner reasons, uh, a variety of factors out there contributing to this overweightedness and obesity in both cats and dogs. Um, And I, I know that we tend to think about it as sometimes that, that may be cute, or food is love, uh, treating, overtreating, etc. But that overweightedness, that excess fat tissue, is actually contributing to other disorders as well. Uh, well, yeah, includes- I,
0: I want to. Yes, go ahead. You're about to say it. I want to talk about that. So, for cats, yeah. would it be safe to say we have? an epidemic, I don't use that word lightly, of diabetes, which is greatly caused by so many cats being overweight or obese.
2: Yes, certainly it's not the only contributing factor to diabetes in cats, but it is a main or a major contributor to diabetes in cats. Uh, And in dogs, we tend to see that more so in terms of the osteoarthritis. Uh, I will point out, though, that while we tend to notice the osteoarthritis in dogs, Cats do experience osteoarthritis as well. They just are maybe a little bit better at hiding their pain than uh, dogs, and we should be paying more attention to that as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And new studies, in fact, indicate that arthritis in cats occurs far more, far more than we ever thought in the first place. Cats of any age, for reasons we don't understand, but then add to it, our cats are living longer, so geriatric cats, and what we just talked about, overweight and obese cats, which makes them more likely to be arthritic. In dogs, some of those answers are the same. Our dogs are living longer than ever before, There's a genetic predisposition in some breeds and some individual families for arthritis in dogs. And it is, maybe you tell me, more common than previously thought, even in dogs. Yeah, so
2: I I would uh, have to agree with that. And I would say that that whole field, that whole area, just like in human medicine, of gerontology is just opening up within uh, veterinary medicine there. And we need to be paying attention and how can we uh, better help these pets as they age. I will say that uh, Purina has done an excellent job at looking at that overweightedness and obesity for many years. We actually performed a Purina lifespan study a number of years ago. It was completed back in 2002. So we've been looking at this for a, a very long time and studying it, showing that in that study, dogs, that... Uh, are lean-fed and fed to a lean body condition, live longer and healthier lives. Uh, and it's not just about that longer. I will point out again, it's about longer and healthier lives. So it does pay to maintain that lean body condition throughout life.
0: So what do we do as dogs continue to age? We see oftentimes two things concurrently happen. That dog is overweight or obese, and that dog is arthritic. Uh, You're a veterinary nutritionist. I want to talk about... So you're a veterinarian first and foremost, some things that we can do, but specifically targeting nutrition. And you hear about all these products out there, you know, some nutritional supplements. Well, do they really have science behind them? So what does the pet parent do? And is there action that should be taken in the first place, or do you just let the dog age?
2: Well, what I would say is the nutritionist rule of thumb and what should be, actually, just every veterinarian's rule of thumb is prevention in the first place is key. So we should be discussing uh, calories in, calories out, and just nutrition and diet in general during those uh, vaccine appointments as a puppy and a kitten. And certainly when we're spaying and neutering uh, our, our pets, we should be discussing nutrition as well and possibly calorically adjusting the diet there. However, that said, as we mentioned earlier, there are a good number, a good percentage of cats and dogs that are currently overweight and obese. So for those, there are actually diets out there that I would encourage pet owners to speak to their veterinarian about that are specifically formulated in a way to help with weight loss. It's not just about feed less, because when you feed less, you are feeding less fat in that diet, but you're also feeding less of every other nutrient of protein, of uh, all the vitamins and minerals in the diet. And that's not desired and can result in long-term nutritional deficiencies. Obviously, no one wants that for their pet. This is why there are therapeutic diets out there that are specifically formulated for this, that fortify those vitamins and minerals so you don't run into those nutritional deficiencies. And just as important, keep that protein up in the diet to help you preserve your lean body mass, that muscle. And we want to maintain our muscle as we lose weight because it's helping us burn calories as we lose weight. We want to preferentially lose that fat. So those specially formulated diets do uh, lower the fat content they raise the protein, and they fortify those vitamins and minerals for you. And that's what makes them so special. Some of them even address the osteoarthritis. And Purina has just launched, under the Purina Plan Veterinary Diets brand, a new diet known as Overweight Management, or OM, metabolic response plus joint mobility for dogs. And it's going to be shipping in March of
0: 2023 okay so that's just about right now actually uh, and I want to talk I want to talk a little more about that diet and therapeutic diets but I also want to talk about what not to do uh, and this is an important point sometimes people will say for cats all right I'm just gonna not gonna not gonna feed you as much you'll get half as much as you were getting or for dogs as well there's two issues with that one you kind of touched on. And that is a potential medical issue, which could be a real concern, particularly for cats. Uh, But the other is a welfare issue, you know, to cut their diet in half. No one's explaining to the dog why you're getting half the food you were getting. And really, how effective is doing this anyway? Because now we have a dog that's so hungry, or a cat all the time, and probably begging at the table for food, and we never say no to our pets when they beg. So, a lot there to talk about when we come back with Dr. Jason Gagne of Purina next. Speaking with the Director of Veterinary Technical Communications at Purina Veterinary Nutritionist, Dr. Jason Gagne. And, Dr. Gagne, you were describing a new diet that Purina has that's coming out right now, to fill a niche, to fill a void in the market, something we really need for our pets. So describe again what that is.
2: Yeah, thanks, Steve. So it's a diet that addresses overweightedness and joint mobility in dogs. So all too often, hand in hand, that excess fat tissue is contributing to joint disease if the dog doesn't already have joint disease. It just compounds upon uh, that, that dog, unfortunately. So this diet was, is addressing a couple different areas, and specifically really the metabolism of dogs and actually transforming that metabolism of them as they lose weight. So we all know that you can lose weight in many different ways. You just don't eat, right? or you eat less calories. Uh, this diet does address the fact that you can eat a good amount. There's a good volume that the dog can consume. They can be Their appetite can be satiated as well. And as they lose weight, we've shown in a study that we're able to transform their metabolism by decreasing that glucose and that insulin in them. We're also able to decrease the cholesterol and the triglycerides in them and We showed that we were able to decrease uh, certain inflammatory markers in them as they lost weight, because that excess fat tissue that results in a low-grade inflammation in your body.
0: And that, that
2: right, along, along with the weight loss.
0: And that inflammation that you speak of, inflammation is like a four-letter word, even though it's a lot more letters than that, because that can create potentially some kinds of cancers, some kinds of other medical problems, leading to, say, kidney disease is one example, and other issues that can occur, particularly with older dogs. So we decreasing that inflammation, hooray, what you talk about is amazing science. Now, what I want to ask you about is what people tend to to do. We're human beings. I understand why we do it. So one answer is just to cut the dog, we're talking dogs, but I'll add cats into the mix, to cut the amount of food they get. Same food, but I'm just going to feed you less, significantly less. What are the repercussions of that, Dr. Gagne?
2: Well, there's a couple things there, Steve. So as I mentioned before, you could feed less. That is an approach. However, medically speaking, that's going to lead towards long-term nutritional deficiencies, and no one wants that for their cat or dog. Um, number two, you're dealing with a very practical issue there, which in the home, that's going to result in a decrease in that human-animal bond because that dog or that is going to be begging for, you know, table scraps, other snacks, etc. Uh, and, you know, the cats certainly aren't going to be very happy either, batting at you to get your attention so that you can give them treats or more food, it winds up resulting in decreased compliance with a weight loss program. And that's why therapeutic foods are so much better because, again, you can feed them more volume to satiate that appetite.
0: So the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention that we spoke about much earlier is going to begin to dive deeper into this issue And I'm honored to serve on their board of directors. And I know you have an interest in this organization as well. uh, Because here's the thing. We don't exactly know. We know what might contribute to so many overweight and obese pets. Uh, Maybe not getting enough exercise. Too many treats. Things we've talked about for years that are true. But it's got to be more than that do we know exactly what is causing there to be so many overweight and obese animals in America?
2: You know, I think that the, again, as you mentioned, I think that the folks at the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention are really digging into this and is going to be helping us in terms of communication in the long run, Steve. Uh, We do have to be realistic that uh, diet is one component of this uh, kind of triangular area of there's diet, There's feeding management, and then there's those pet owner factors. Um, So I can't stress enough that the communication between the veterinary staff and the owners is truly important, and we need to be having open, honest conversation about this and a trained veterinary staff as well to be having that conversation and understanding that pet owner's expectations and desires and work with that.
0: And it's more than that, too. Uh, as in for human beings, uh, there's uh, familial genetics, the genetics of the individual family, and uh, add in for dogs and some cats, it may be the breed predisposition as well. So, pugs seem to have an issue, for example, that they more likely than at least some other breeds, some of the time, may be overweight or obese. We don't see this as often, I've seen it, it happens with, say, whippets, you know, small sighthound. So so it's a a complicated issue, isn't it?
2: Yes. So I would say that, you know, in terms of those pet factors, the activity level of the pet, some of us are, you know, Olympic athletes, but some of us are, you know, have the metabolism of, you know, the sloth. (laughs) So, uh, you know, uh, again, I often talk with folks and I do nutrition consults, and I, you know, I often refer to this as, you know, you eat a piece of cheesecake and don't gain any weight. I sniff a piece of cheesecake and gain 10 pounds. We're all individuals, and we all have to uh, incorporate uh, a different different approach to diet in different ways. So is it the type of diet? Is it the amount of the diet? Is it when are we eating the diet? So we're all individuals, and as time goes on, we figure out, Scientifically, we figure out more and more about that. But as you mentioned, there are certain breeds that are predisposed. Aging, dogs tend to, uh, their metabolism tends to slow down as they age, and we really need to be revisiting it throughout their life. The best thing we can do, again, as I mentioned, is teach an owner, uh, have the veterinary staff talk with that owner, and get the, uh, get the owner to understand how to body condition score and even muscle condition score their pets because prevention is the best medicine
0: from the get-go. muscle condition score might even be more important, and that is something that greatly isn't being done. We only have one minute here for you to answer this, but it turns out as our cats get older... I believe the new way of thinking, you'll tell me, is we actually want them to be, we don't want them to be obese, but we may want them to have an extra pound or two as they go into this kind of geriatric age. Is that true?
2: It's an interesting concept you bring up that's been around for some time that's uh, been termed uh, by certain folks as the uh, obesity paradox. So uh, (laughs) there is something to be said because cats do tend to get skinny, Uh, as they get older. uh, We do see that happen, and it's often referred to as the skinny old cat. So my opinion as a veterinary nutritionist, may not be a bad idea to be a pound over uh, over the ideal in that case, Steve, Um, have a little extra reserve to pull on. But I can't stress enough, really, that what's even the most important is to probably be muscle condition scoring those cats because where we may notice disease a heck of a lot quicker in a dog, cats are a little bit more insidious, unfortunately, and they tend to hide it. So palpate I would say palpating for the veterinary staff, but just touching your cat and rubbing your hand down their spine, for example, in that lower spine area, feeling that muscle mass along their back is very important. And if you start to see that go, some of that may be normal. The loss of muscle mass is normal as we age, but... Having it dramatically decrease is uh, not normal, and you should be speaking with your veterinarian about that.
0: Absolutely. Dr. Jason Gagne, I think we all get continuing education credit for listening to this conversation. Thank you so much. If you didn't see this commercial, the Super Bowl commercial, Saving Sawyer, probably you will see it at some point because they spend so much money making these commercials. They do air them subsequent to the Super Bowl. And not only did millions of people see this commercial while watching the Super Bowl, many millions will over time. And that is what concerns me, because this commercial called Saving Sawyer, which was sweet in so many ways, actually is a problem for me, a big one, Because this commercial is filled with misinformation. So, let me explain. If you haven't seen the commercial, you've got a dog that was presumably adopted during the pandemic. Everybody loves everybody. Family loves the dog. And there they are sitting on the sofa, all together watching TV. Everyone's petting the dog. Clearly, this dog is a beloved family member. And then you hear, sort of in the background, if you're listening for it, a voice say, lockdown is over. So, suddenly, next scene... Kids are off, probably to school, I hope. Uh, the parents are off, probably to work. And the dog is looking so sad, looking out the window, looking at all the family members going away. The dog responds, next scene, by tearing up the house. <laughs> tearing pillows, ripping them all over the place. Uh, even at one point, bringing a painting. I don't know how the dog got a painting off the wall, uh, down a stairwell. And this dog clearly has separation anxiety. So the solution the Amazon.com solution is suddenly a crate shows up at the house. And you're thinking, oh no, they're taking the dog away in a crate. That's not what happens. They open the crate, out comes another dog. And everybody is happy. And, and the, the, the what they're saying is, okay, you have a dog with separation anxiety, simply get another dog. No, that, that's fine, except that does not help dogs with separation anxiety. We know it doesn't. Oh, sure, once in a while. But by and large, it does not do anything to help solve that problem. Here's what to do. If you think your dog has separation anxiety, videotape the event. Then show your veterinarian what's going on. We'll talk to you next week bright and early, right here on WGN.